0: Thank you, Richard, very good evening. Everyone, it's really good to see you here and I just wanna say a special welcome to those who have just come to Belfast for the first time, perhaps maybe students or maybe starting work here. Uh, It's really, really good to have you at Crescent tonight and we'd love you to join us afterwards. Uh, We're having some food out the back and then obviously next Sunday, uh, we're having a a young adults lunch. I think I still fit in that category of young adults, so I will be attending. just sneak it now though, I think unfortunately. Um, But yeah, it's really, really good to see you. We're going to start with just saying a word of prayer, and then we're going to read our passage today, which is 1 Samuel chapter 4 and going into chapter 5 as well, actually. Uh, So if you have a Bible with you, it'd be great if you could open up to that passage. But let me just turn to God in prayer before we read. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word now, we realize that your word is living, it's active, uh, it is sharp. Uh, Lord, but ultimately you want to change us through it, Lord. We realize that is uh, what you want to do through your word. You want to change us, you want to mold us and shape us into the people you'd have us be. So we ask, Lord, that as we uh, hear from your word, we might be ready uh, to be changed by your spirit uh, through the power of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Apek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli Hophni Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, well, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of, God, of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own, its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. It's a passage that seems pretty bleak, doesn't it? It's a passage that maybe when we first read it doesn't seem like it has much to say to us tonight here in Belfast, but I believe it does, so bear with me. This evening I want to speak under three headings. The first is this, trying to use God is foolish. Trying to use God is foolish. The second heading is God's surprising strategy, God's surprising strategy, and the third heading is God's wisdom triumphs. So let's consider the first. Trying to use God is foolish. Our passage starts with a march to battle uh, Israel versus the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines were this old and powerful enemy. I'm sure many of you have heard of the Philistines. They were particularly technologically advanced. Uh, we read in 1 Samuel 13 that they had uh, this incredible capacity to make weapons and sharpen even the plowshares and sickles of the Israelites. They had a monopoly on blacksmiths. Uh, And so the Israelites march into this battle against this powerful enemy, and the battle rages, and at the end of the battle, 4,000 men are lying dead on the ground. It's a massive, catastrophic loss, especially when you consider that 3,000 people were killed in 9-11, and we think of that as an almighty tragedy. 4,000 lie dead. And the surviving Israelite soldiers, they return to their camp forlorn, And they say, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Why did the Lord do that? And that question reveals so much, I think. Because they assumed that God would win their battles, and they assumed that their defeat was a result of something deficient in God rather than something deficient in them. And last week when Jim spoke to us, uh, we heard about the state of the nation of Israel at this time. These guys were treating God appallingly. The priests uh, were power-hungry, greedy men, Uh, and we heard about their weak father, Eli. Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, they were scoundrels, we read. They had no regard for the Lord. They they were supposed to act as guardians of the things of God, yet they treated their role as a way to accumulate wealth and power and influence. They treated the Lord's offering with contempt, we read in chapter 2. They took meat that should have been offered up to God and they gluttonously indulged themselves. And not only that, they slept with some of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Such was the perversion and darkness of their hearts. They sought to use their religion as a source of power and control. And When we think of the world, we can probably think of people like that who use religion for power and control as a tool to get what they wanted, a lucky charm to bring them success. And that explains the response to Israel's initial defeat. In verse three, look down at that. If you've got the passage open, it says this. Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemy. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. Do you see that how the text, how the author of the text emphasizes the honor of the ark, the glory of the ark, the ark of the Lord Almighty enthroned between the cherubim. This was God's throne on earth. Professor David Gooding puts it like this, the place of the presence where God, the living God, designed to dwell and presence himself among the Israelites, the transcendent, Lord, maker of heaven and earth, condescended to come down to our planet and presence himself on the cherubim that were upon the mercy seat, upon the ark of the holiest of all the tabernacle of Israel. All the holiness laws of the tabernacle begin to make sense in the light of this reality. I think that quote gives a little bit of a sense of the significance of this ark. This, this box, if you like, was given significance because God designed to dwell there, to presence himself amongst his people. Yet how do these guys treat it? How do the Israelites treat it? Well, they they treat it like a cheap toy, like a mascot, like a lucky charm. And that was a really, really foolish move. It was so unworthy, it was so profane. Yet as I thought about it, I thought at times that is such a relatable move. Because as Christians, we're prone I'm prone to treat the God who created us, who created the universe, a bit like we treat a waiter in a restaurant. We'll maybe usher him over when we need him, but for the rest of the time, we, we're quite happy doing our own thing. We disregard him most of the time. Maybe another analogy is like a, like a genie in a bottle. That's, somehow, that's sometimes how we treat God. We'll, we'll rub the bottle when we need a wish granted, when it's exam season maybe, things are getting a bit stressful, or when we have a doctor's appointment, or when the job is getting stressful, when we want to know what to do or where to go, but but most of the rest of the time, it's just nice to know that we have the bottle, just in case. And as I thought about that, I I looked into some statistics, and it turns out it's not just Christians who behave like that. In fact, there was a poll carried out back in 2018 that found that over half of UK adults pray Even 20% of those who said they were not religious at all admitted that they prayed. It's really interesting, isn't it? That desire to pray when times get tough. But human beings like to do that with God. They like to put God in a little box, a little safe box, and then take him wherever they'd like to go. And this passage tells us that is a foolish thing to do. God will not be treated like that. And so the Israelites carry the ark onto the battlefield, and walking alongside it in pompous fashion are those two scoundrels, Hophni and Phineas. and they were experts at this, right? They knew exactly how to leverage God for their own advantage, leverage religion for their own advantage, and here they are doing it again, walking alongside the ark, carrying it out onto the battlefield. How could they possibly lose? They've brought God to the battle. And the people shout loud and the ground shakes and the Philistines are terrified because they know about this God. They know about the Lord. They know he can do great and mighty things. In fact, they did it themselves. They carried their own idols onto the battlefield. They knew that, or they they believed it could be an effective strategy. And the battle rages and what happens in the end? Well, thousands upon thousands lie dead. To put it in context, on the 1st of July, 1916, in northern France, the Battle of the Somme began. And it became the bloodiest day in British military history. There were 57,470 casualties, and among them 19,240 dead. And there was one death every five seconds. Such was the heat of the battle. And in this second battle with the Philistines, The Israelites lost 30,000 foot soldiers. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, lay dead. And the most shocking thing of all, the Ark of God was captured. The Israelites had treated God's glory, God's weighty presence, cheaply. Their priests had defiled themselves and made a mockery of God's law. They tried to use God They'd abused the Lord Almighty. They had no appreciation for who He is, for His character, for His kindness, for His majesty. And God said no. He wouldn't tolerate that wickedness any longer. And that day, 30,000 fell. Trying to use God is foolish. And a messenger ran back to Eli, the high priest, to tell him, the news, and upon learning that the Ark of God was captured, we read that he fell off his chair, and his neck was broken, and he died. The thing that shocked him the most was the Ark of the Lord was captured. That was the moment, did you notice in the text, that he fell off his chair? Because that was a shocking thing. The glory of the Lord had departed. We read that Eli was heavy, and he was heavy because he'd been eating the choice meat that should have been offered to the Lord. And so the glory of the Lord departs. And so we move to our second heading, God's surprising strategy. Look down at verses 19 to 22. Here we read a tragic account of Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, and she was pregnant and near the time of delivery, and upon hearing the news that Eli and Phinehas were dead, she went into labor and died. And as she died, the midwives urged her not to despair. They said to her, you've given birth to a son. I'm trying to hold out some hope to her. Look, there's hope. But she doesn't even have the energy to respond. It's a horrible, horrible scene, isn't it? All she has the strength to do is name the boy Ichabod, saying the glory had departed, has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Ichabod, a name that no one would ever want to name their child, no glory, it's a dark name, it's a hopeless scene. But here was a woman who understood the significance of what was going on here. Because the thing that distinguished Israel from all the nations around them was that the very presence of God dwell among them. God gave them value and worth and distinctiveness, purpose, hope. But God's throne, the ark was gone, his glory had departed the darkness of a world without God is unparalleled, isn't it? I think we get glimpses of it, don't we? When we look around us and we see people living lives completely cut off from God. Ultimately, when we live like that, when we live like the world is a materialistic place with no God, meaning evaporates. It dissipates, doesn't it? And a world without God is exactly what hell is like. And the scene cuts away from this dying mother and we focus in on the enemy camp here. And it's a bit like those scenes in Lord of the Rings where where it cuts away from the Shire and the nice hobbits and all this stuff. And it cuts to Mordor and to these horrible creatures in the enemy camp. And we see the Ark being carried alone into the darkness of the enemy camp, into this pagan temple. God's throne being manhandled and positioned alongside this idol Dagon. And it seems like the ultimate humiliation, doesn't it? seems like God has lost control of this situation and the powers of darkness have triumphed. Yet this is God's surprising strategy. You see, God could have sent lightning bolts from heaven or hail or an angel of death and zapped his enemies, destroyed the Philistines in a moment for their wickedness. But instead, he allows himself to be captured. He gives himself over to his enemies to let them do their very worst and he goes into their stronghold alone and allows himself to be humiliated. And I wonder if that strategy sounds familiar. As I thought about it, I thought of a scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, and I just wanna read a little extract from that now. The scene is when the, the lion, Aslan, hands himself over to be killed by his enemies. and It says this, Lucy and Susan held their breaths waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies, but it never came. Four hags, grinning and leering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the White Witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarves and apes, rushed in to help them. And between them they rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise, even when the enemy, straining and tugging, pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh. Then they began to drag him toward the stone table. Stop, said the witch, let him first be shaved. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head. Snip, snip, snip went the shears, and masses of curling gold curling gold began to fall to the ground. Then the ogre stood back, and the children, watching from their hiding place, could see the face of Aslan looking all small and different without its mane. The enemies also saw the difference. Why, he's only a great cat after all, cried one. Is this what we were afraid of, said another, and they surged round Aslan, jeering at him, saying things like, puss, puss, poor pussy, and how many mice have you caught today, cat, and would you like a saucer of milk pussums? Oh, how can they, said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks, the brutes, the brutes. For now that the first shock was over, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her, braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. I think that's a really striking extract. A preacher called Jonathan Edwards once wrote a famous sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and an American preacher inverted that title and talked instead of God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. And that second title is surely much more faithful to the character of our God. You see, our God is Aslan-like. And in the capture of the ark, we see a foretaste of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see God's presence in human flesh in Christ. And how do we see him behave in the face of the powers of darkness? It's a hymn we're gonna sing at the end called Come and See, and it says this. Come and see, come and see, come and see the king of love. See the purple robe and crown of thorns he wears. Soldiers mock, rulers sneer as he lifts the cruel cross. Lone and friendless now, he climbs towards the hill. I think those words are incredibly poignant, aren't they? When we think of the Lord Jesus surrounded by his enemies, the mockery, the scorn, carrying that cruel wooden cross towards Calvary, his back plowed up with the furrows of flogging, a thorny crown plunged into his head, painfully stumbling along that lonely road. when we think of him hanging alone in the darkness, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It appears a desperate defeat, doesn't it? Imagine Satan's forces were gleefully rejoicing just like the Philistines would have been. What a victory they thought they'd won. But this is the way our God operates, isn't it? This is God's surprising strategy. And so finally, to my last heading, God's wisdom triumphs. In Colossians 2 and verse 15, we read of Christ's victory. It says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, Satan's forces weren't rejoicing for long. Because in giving himself over to his enemies, Christ won the greatest of victories. He disarmed and publicly shamed the powers of darkness. He loosed their grip on humanity and exposed their weakness and lies. Satan can no longer accuse us as Christians because all our sins are forgiven in Christ. Our debt has been taken away, nailed to the cross. And those are precious truths, aren't they, that that warm our hearts as Christians. God's victory through apparent weakness. That's how God operates. God's wisdom triumphs. And so in 1 Samuel 5, the people of Ashdod, they rise the next morning and they go and check on the ark in Dagon's temple. And Dagon is flat on his face, on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so it's kind of a tragic scene, isn't it? They've got to prop him back up again. How embarrassing. They prop Dagon back up before the ark. And it's probably just a one-off, they think, they hope. But the next morning they get up and they go back to the temple again and Dagon is in the same position, flat on his face, and this time his head's missing and his hands have been broken off. The Removal of his hands demonstrates his lack of power in his head, his lack of wisdom. And how embarrassing to have to stick his head back on to worship him, what kind of God is that? The foolishness of idols. God is teaching us uh, and teaching the the pagan Philistines a lesson that, that our culture would do well to learn here, and and it's this, the idols always fall. Think of Hitler's Germany or the Soviet Union, the, the idolatry of nationalism and socialism, gone, utterly destroyed. Or the idol of progress, 200 million people killed as a result of nationalism and communism in the 20th century, showed the foolishness of that idol. What about money? Well, the recession of 2007 to 2009 showed us how quickly that can topple, how fragile that idol is. What about democracy and capitalism? Well, the United States isn't in a great place at the moment, is it? What about the idol of sexual freedom? There's so much that can be said on that. We could do an entire series on it. But the, the fighting, even at the moment, within the LGBT movement demonstrates the fragility of that idol. The LGB doesn't sit at all comfortably with the T. Uh, and what's more, there's now a growing de-transition movement within the transgender uh, movement that's, that's comprised of those who want to reverse their transgender identification. And I believe that future generations will, will look back aghast at what we've done to children in the sphere of gender. Ultimately, no idol will stand. Everything will fall before the Lord Almighty. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, humanism, whatever it is, all will be exposed, their heads and arms will be removed, and God alone will be left standing. And so on a personal level, I think it's important to ask ourselves, what are we worshipping? Are we worshipping false gods? Are we worshipping things that will topple, that will fall? As well as destroying Dagon, the Lord brought devastation on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity, He afflicted them with tumors, and in doing so, he showed the Philistines, these powerful people, just how vulnerable they were. It seems a tiny virus spread from Philistine to Philistine. These guys who could raise an army that would kill thousands couldn't stop a little virus from spreading throughout their community. They were vulnerable, and God wanted them to know it. I mentioned 9-11 previously, I'm sure you, like me, have watched some of the documentaries that have been on TV recently about that event which took place around 20 years ago. And that day is etched into my memory. I was only eight years old, but I remember leaving school, and I remember going to the bus stop to meet my mom, and I remember telling my brother and I that something had happened in America. And I remember going and watching on TV as a smoke billowed from these towers. I didn't fully understand it, but I knew it was significant. And that was a momentous day, a monumental event. America, seemingly so strong and powerful, was under attack. It realized its vulnerability, didn't it? Our modern world wasn't the safe place that we maybe thought it was. Sudden and deadly violence could strike at any moment. The sinking of the Titanic at the beginning of the 20th century had a similar impact on society, as has the pandemic recently. And the Philistines realize their vulnerability and they start freaking out. They're moving the ark from city to city, trying to get rid of it, hoping the plague will end. And a proud and powerful people are brought low. But one thing that struck me as I read it is their response wasn't to cast Dagon aside and worship the Lord. It was to move the ark from place to place, exactly the same thing that that the Israelites tried to do with God at the moment, leverage him for their own advantage, move him about to do their will. They do exactly the same thing. They'll do anything else but bow down before the true and living God. And that sounds like our society as well, doesn't it? Let's try and figure this out on our own. Let's use our own wisdom and strength, but we'll never bow down. And so, to close, God himself has been the witness to the pagan Philistines, the pagan nations, the witness that Israel failed to be Israel's religious hypocrisy was exposed and judged. They treated the holy and majestic God like a cheap, lucky charm, and they'd experienced the tragic consequences of that. This was a lesson they needed to learn. And God himself went alone into the enemy stronghold. He showed the Philistines the futility of their idolatry and their vulnerability. God's wisdom triumphed over the powers of darkness. Christians, May God help us never to treat his glory lightly. May we be taken up with his wisdom and his willingness to face humiliation and shame in order to secure victory. And if you're not a Christian this evening, we wanna say you're incredibly welcome here and it's so good you're with us. But this passage teaches us that we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable, aren't we? It's important to be reminded of that. And it teaches us that idols always fall God's truth will always stand. So I want to urge you to turn to Christ. Turn to the God who loves you. Come to see in the words of the New Testament, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and be filled with abundant hope. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, help us never to treat you like a lucky charm or like a genie in a bottle. Heavenly Father, help us never to treat your weighty glory lightly. Thank you, Father, for showing us the danger of using religion as a tool to get what we want, to build power or establish control. Lord, please keep me from that, keep us from that. Lord, may we give you the honor that you deserve. May we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But thank you, Father, for your surprising, subversive strategy for your willingness to face humiliation and loneliness in order to secure victory. And Lord, we see that most clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ who walked that lonely road to the cross, who faced mockery and scorn, and who died in our place to win a great victory over the powers of darkness so that we might be welcomed into your family, Lord. Thank you for showing us in this passage the the foolishness of idols and how vulnerable we are. Lord, we cast ourselves on you. We turn to you, the God who loves us enough to die for us. And we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we're filled with hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're gonna close by singing the hymn that I quoted. Come and see, and then the service will be done.